Welcome back, America. It's Hugh Hewitt. For those of you who are just listening, Secretary Esper and I talked for an additional three or four minutes. I'm going to play that in the third segment and have my guest, Dr. Larry Arn, comment on it because it's important to the news of the day. But Dr. Larry Arn is president of Hillsdale College, and I warned him about one specific subject today, which is Judge Sullivan and the attack on due process that is underway. And so you've tuned into the Hillsdale Dialogue, the last radio hour of the week. All things Hillsdale are found at hillsdale.edu, including all of our conversations dating back to 2013, Hugh for Hillsdale.com. Dr. Larry Arn is the president of that August institution, the Lighthouse of Sweet Reason in the North. It's also the Lighthouse of Sweet Reason in the shadow of the Capitol, where they have their graduate school in D.C., where they're still accepting applications. I'm afraid Dr. Arn is threatening to come back to D.C. soon. Are you coming back to D.C. soon, Dr. Arn? Well, I, I hope to get there at least one day before it becomes legal. <laughs> <laughs> You know, you're a non-compliant kind of guy, aren't you? I just, you know, I live in Michigan, and, you know, you love to vaunt Ohio. Nobody can make rules like Michigan. <laughs> We're just really good at it. There's a fact of the, of the governor's 70-some, you know, in 60 days, 70-some multi-page executive orders, and the fact now runs to 850 points. You know what I am afraid of? I am afraid that she is surrounded by graduates of my alma mater, the University of Michigan Law School, who did not get jobs when they graduated because of the economy, and so they put them to work turning out executive order after executive I haven't seen anything like Michigan. I mean, Mike DeWine, down south, the great governor of Ohio, he brings out his medical, they talk about it, they kind of suggest to people what to do, they have some shutdown orders, but they are not going full draconian like Governor Whitmer is. Well, we're going back to work now, but uh, we're, we're, we're going back to work under rules. And so you can have the tomato soup, but not the lobster bisque, stuff like that. <laughs> you know, I, I'm, I want to get to Judge Sullivan, but I got to ask you, you went to Hong Kong at the handover, did you not, with the great Bruce Hershenson? I did. Well, did you suspect that in 2020, the People's Congress would meet under the domineering hand of General Secretary Xi? and impose a national security law that effectively repeals two systems, one country. It is a repudiation of every commitment they made in 1997. Well, I, of, of course, one suspected it. Uh, I, uh, it turns out my wife's brother was the head of the Hong Kong office of a London law firm in the, in the year that Lady Thatcher went to Hong Kong and agreed to hand the place over. And I happened to arrive there for the first time in my life the day after she left. And the city was papered with posters calling for a Bill of Rights. And uh, Uncle John, my brother-in-law, I, he, we walked around town and he told me about this stuff. And so I found out the name of Martin Lee, retired now, but the, the founder of the Hong Kong Freedom Movement in the face of this Chinese takeover. And I know him well. And he... I was with him on the day of the handover, and of course one was frightened they would do that. And, you know, they're very clever. Uh, you know, it, it, it's fun. To, it, it's important. It's not fun. It's important to watch the Chinese government because that's sort of where we're going. So what did they do? There's this thing called the Legislative Council that the British had set up, and it was popularly elected. And it was, of course, very much in favor of civil liberties. And there's an overwhelming majority of the people in Hong Kong who are and who are worried about that. And so what they did was they changed the method of appointing it 
so that now there's a guaranteed uh, majority of stakeholders, and stakeholders are people who run big companies who are under heavily under Chinese influence, and other types, and some percentage of it elected by the people. In the legislative council, the Chinese always have a majority. Well, they did that 10 years ago. And so step by step, you know, now they appoint the executive. It's somebody friendly to them. And, they're, and you know, the, the Hong Kong people just won't stop. And so they're getting ready to put effectively martial law on the place. It is martial law. That's what people need to understand. And, and you would be well advised to get the hell out of Hong Kong. If you've been in a demonstration, I know that most of the people there can't, but they will, they may go full Tiananmen Square, and I do not believe the Hong Kong people will go quietly into the night, do you? No, I, well, you know, it, uh, my, my wise friend Tom West, politics professor here, he likes to say, you have to remember that force is very forceful. <laughs> so, so, you know, they can do a lot to people, and uh, they won't. The Hong Kong, in this story, you know, the great journalist on this is a, a woman uh, on the Wall Street Journal editorial page by the name of Jillian Melcher, and uh, she happens to be a Hillsdale graduate. I know her well. And she's just followed this, and she said she's, she marvels at how they just won't stop the people of Hong Kong. And on the other hand, what's the end game for them? How do they win? It's very difficult to see. And, uh, you know, you just study the history of the Soviet takeover after the, during the, in the last two years of the Second World War and then for 60 years later of the Eastern European nations. And the truth is they pled for help decade after decade, and there was no help coming, and there couldn't be. The Soviet Union was too strong. So they, alas, have been appointed as an example to the rest of us. Now, uh, Dr. Arndt, uh, people will not understand this, but it is of a piece. What happens in Hong Kong when their due process rights are denied them is exactly what is happening to General Flynn without the physical abuse. His due process rights have been violated. Among those due process rights are the Brady Rules, which require exculpatory evidence to be provided to an accused before they make a plea. Now, yeah. General Flynn has pled guilty. There are reasons I suspect he did so that have to do with his family, have nothing to do with his believing himself guilty, but he did not know that he could win because they did not turn over the Brady evidence. And Judge Sullivan still will not release him, even though the Department of Justice has admitted grievous error and injustice. And so the D.C. Circuit on a petition for a writ of mandamus from his lawyers has now directed that judge to explain himself. And the intimation is clear that they will reverse him. What does this episode tell us? Uh, well, it's a big story. So first of all, you know, it, if you start at the beginning, uh, the courts and the government and the FBI and the police and everybody, they have the ability to use force. I mean, just like is being used on people of Hong Kong, and that much force if it's needed. So the question is, where does the uh, authority to use that force come from? The glory of the American Constitution, the thing about it that Winston Churchill admired unreservedly, is what we now call in the common discourse the theory of the unitary executive. But it's not a theory. The executive branch, all of it, reports to the president, and that means the Justice Department and the FBI, and that's legitimate 
because the people pick him and they can blame him. That's the argument in The Federalist. Well, the second step, after you have a unitary executive, is you have to separate that from the legislature, which makes the laws, and the judges, and the independent judiciary, which is mentioned three times in the 17 complaints against the king in the Declaration of Independence, is simply fundamental. And they're not executives, right? They are, they're passive in this way. When the arm, the arm of the law reaches out and gets somebody, it has to take him before this guy who can't be fired, a girl. And that person, according to law, judges whether they can be detained or punished. And that's a sort of a final step in the execution of the law, and it's contrived to protect the rights of the individual. Well, judges, are they have to wait. Right? They don't go seeking. They don't arrest people. They don't have the power to do that. They don't make a law. Of course, they do these days. So what, what Sullivan has done is the Justice Department, you know, an executive branch agency operating, by the way, in ways that call into question its accountability to the elected executive, they bring charges against Flynn, and now they dismiss those charges, and Sullivan is keeping them alive. And that's, you know, and that's, that's sort of, in America, the official classes in America, the professorate, the media, uh, the, the bureaucracy, way too many politicians, they all think in terms of power now. And they don't think enough in terms of responsibility. And so the judge, he just thinks this got in his court, he's got the power to keep it alive, even if the cooperating branches don't think so. And the D.C. Circuit has said, wait a minute, because what he's done, and we'll talk about this after the break, deserves the description sinister. Very few things do. I don't go over the top. I don't believe in the deep state. But this is sinister. And we'll talk about it with Dr. Larry Arn of Hillsdale College after the break. All things Hillsdale are collected at hillsdale.edu. All of our conversations dating back to 2013 are at Hugh for Hillsdale, beginning with Homer. And right up to a petition for a writ of mandate from the D.C. Circuit on the behalf of General Flynn. We'll be right back on The Hugh Hewitt Show. Welcome back, America. It's Hugh Hewitt with Dr. Larry Arn. The Hillsdale Dialogue is underway. All things Hillsdale, which you can spend your entire weekend luxuriating in Hillsdale video courses at hillsdale.edu. Or you can go online to hughforhillsdale.com and, and binge listen as you walk, run, trundle, to our conversations about anything from Hover to this order that was issued yesterday, which I now read. Filed on May 21st before Judges Henderson, Wilkins, and Rao, circuit judges. Now, what's interesting about this draw, uh, Larry Arn, is that judge, uh, the three judges come from President Trump, President Obama, and George H.W. Bush. So we got a very diverse panel here. Upon consider- consideration of the emergency petition for a writ of mandamus, it is ordered on the court's own motion that within 10 days of the date of this order, the district judge file a response addressing the petitioner's request that this court order the district judge to grant the government's motion to dismiss. C, Federal Rule of Criminal Procedure 48A, United States v. Foker Services, 2016. The government is invited to respond in its discretion within the same day to day period. The court is directed to transmit a or- copy of this order to the district court Per curiam, all three of them, no dissent. Yeah. What do you What do you think's going on here? Well, uh, 
the one of those that I know, I don't know her well, but Naomi Rao is a tremendous woman. She was a law professor, and she was in the Office of Management and Budget uh, in, in the Trump administration. And she is just a brilliant woman and a woman of the law, right? And so this, the, the, apparently they can see how crazy this is by the judge. You know, think, think of this. It's a good idea for people to put themselves in the place of the prosecuted, whether on the left or the right. Uh, because if you ever are, you know, they, there's that old joke, a, uh, a conservative is a liberal who's been mugged, and a liberal is a conservative who's been arrested. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and so... <laughs> yes! So uh, We're all civil libertarians. We actually kind of believe this stuff. Yeah, and that means that the case against you collapses. It's uh, What happened in the Flynn case is it's been uncovered that there's a memo, handwritten memo, by a senior official in the FBI, and it says, effectively, what's our aim here? Are we going to get him to commit a crime? Are we going to get him fired? Why are we going to go see this guy? In the White House, an advisor to the President of the United States. And, and uh, you know, that means that they're fishing around, right? They're going to try to take this guy down. And, uh, and you know, there's way too much of that in, in criminal and civil law, criminal law, for sure, these days. Anyway, that's why the case collapsed. And the Department of Justice, you know, under in a lawsuit, has produced that memo. And then they dismissed the charges against Flynn, to which he has, you know, pleaded guilty to some of them. And so, the, and so now you're, you know, imagine it, you, it's me and you, Hugh, because we're co-conspirators, right? Yeah. We would be, I, I'm not like you. I believe in the deep state. I think we're it. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> you know, if you, read, if, if you read in the New York Times about the deep, deep state, it's people like us. They just mistake that we're members of the state. <laughs> but, uh, but we're pretty deep, I guess. Anyway, um, he, we, get, we get our charges dismissed because there's malfeasance in the prosecution, among other things. <laughs> also, he's not guilty. Whether he's likable or not, it's a different thing. But he doesn't seem to me to be guilty of anything. But and then, you know, I was on with Al Sharpton this past weekend, and Al said he pled guilty. He pled guilty. And I, you've not, Al, you're a due process. You've been persecuted. You've been defending injustices. Injustices happen in our system. The left just can't believe they would ever happen to a conservative, or they wish to ignore them now that one has been revealed. Yeah, and and so we win our great victory, and we, you know we near bankrupt ourselves, by the way, defending ourselves. Finally, we get a good lawyer, Sidney Powell, and she's whirlwind. And so the prosecution drops the charges, but now you're in the hands of the judge, and he's going to decide, right? You, you're st- and, and you know what the judge did when he invited Amicus Brief, friend of the court brief? He's inviting people to take the place of the prosecutor. That's like putting you in the stocks in uh, 17th century America, inviting people to throw tomatoes at you. We never have done this ever in America. More on it when I come back with Dr. Arn, plus Defense Secretary Esper. Don't go anywhere, it's the Hugh Hewitt Show. Welcome back, America, 33 minutes after the hour. Dr. Larry Arn is my guest. It is the Hillsdale Dialogue. Uh, but Dr. Arn has graciously agreed 
to prevent me being the subject of a cruise missile strike, I'm going to play the four minutes of my interview with Secretary Esper that did not air in the first hour now so that I can keep my commitment to him. Then Dr. Arm will comment on those four minutes, and therefore I will not be immolated by a stealth F-35 coming in low over the Beltway. Uh, this is Secretary Esper from 30 minutes ago. The new Secretary of the Navy was confirmed yesterday. Thank goodness. I have been complaining, I'll I'll put diplomatically, about the fact we don't have a plan for the 355-ship Navy that Secretary, that President Trump has promised repeatedly during the campaign and for three years. When will OSD let us see the plan, a real actual nuts and bloats, this ship at this yard at this time to get us to 355, Secretary Esper? Sure. We're working on that plan right now. I've, uh, I've been working closely between my internal think tank, if you will. Uh, we've, uh, the Navy obviously is working closely on this. We've brought in some outside experts. I want to make sure we have a, a, a future naval force that can meet the needs of uh, deterring China and, again, failing that, fighting and winning. I think 355 ships is too few. I actually think we need a bigger Navy than that. I think its composition will look more different. It will be uh, uh, more and smaller type of surface combatants. And if you saw recently, Hugh, we just uh, announced the purchase of a new surface combatant. I think we probably need uh, more uh, in terms of submarines. We need to move much more quickly on uh, unmanned or lightly manned ships. And we certainly need strategic deterrence. So, look, we have the best Navy in the world, and we're going to make it better. And I want to make sure we get that structure right, that future uh, uh, force idea. But it's got to have things like distributed lethality. It has, it has to be survivable against a, a, a near-peer p- power such as China or Russia. And so it has to have certain attributes. We just uh, we need to be looking toward the future and make sure we build the fleet that we need uh, uh, moving Ms. forward. Mr. Secretary, what date will we see the plan by? Oh, I'm currently right now they're looking to uh, uh, back brief me, the team internally, in, uh, in uh, July or August, and then I want to make sure I share it with the Hill and do those types of things. But look, we have a plan right now. It's called our five-year defense plan. So what we have planned is what's going to continue. Uh, the shipbuilding plan is a 30-year plan. It's, uh, it's beyond five years. It's of uncertain value. But what, it, what I do hope to portray is the objective force that we need by 2045, uh, to deal with the Chinese. And by the way, it's not just surface combatants, but we need to start integrating into that plan things like sea lift and, and other enablers that are crucial to the, um, uh, to the maritime fight. I just think it's going to be an issue in the campaign that President Trump promised 355 and we haven't got a plan. But let me move on in our short time left. Well, again, I, I think 355 view is too few. I think we need I, more I, than 355. I'll, st- I'll take that with a plan, Mr. Secretary, but let me, let me go to the Iranian we'll threat. I'll share it with you uh, early on. The, uh, the Iranians keep running speedboats at our ships, and there is an article this week that they are trying to tempt us into shooting them. If the U.S. Navy sinks an Iranian gunboat speedboat, uh, will you stand behind the commander of that ship defending his sailors? Look, we've been very clear. I've had this discussion with the commander. I've had this commanders. I've had this discussion with uh, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. We, we know what the guidance is, the rules of engagement. We've updated it in the last few weeks since... Uh, uh, since that provocative behavior by the Iranians, uh, my forces know that if, uh, if they feel threatened, they always have the right of self-defense, and I will certainly stand behind uh, our men and women in uniform if they take that action. Last question. Will it only be tit for tat, but if the Iranians actually engage us, threaten our sailors, will we be satisfied with sinking one ship, or will there be retaliation beyond that? Because we didn't do anything after they dropped the ICBMs on al-Assad. We just said, okay, time out. This time, will we say time out again? 
Well, it's not. I don't look at things as a tit for tat. The question is, what do you need to do to send the right message and to restore deterrence? And I will tell you that uh, uh, with regard to uh, the actions in December, January, we certainly restored deterrence. Yes, you Uh, did. (laughs) Major player off the battlefield, a terrorist leader of a terrorist organization uh, who is quite capable. And we've set them back considerably. And uh, I always thought that was the right thing to do. Secretary Esper, I appreciate your time. I hope you'll come back soon. I love the candor and I love the, uh, the, the clarity regarding the People's Republic of China. Absolutely. Thank you, you. Thank you, Secretary. Dr. Arn, what'd you make of his tone? We were talking about Iran there. You didn't hear the part about China, which aired last hour. Uh, the same kind of very blunt talk. What'd you make of that? Well, you know, put him and Pompeo together and all of a sudden there's clarity. <laughs> well, and, and, and they're two West Point guys. Uh, yeah. But the Navy gets screwed, though. I mean, they don't get the 355 ship plan. I, I, we got a little, we got a little uh, halfback faint there on the plan, don't you think? Well, uh, so first of all, he's. Uh, I, I should mention, I know him a little bit. Oh, he I didn't know the Heritage, that. Heritage Foundation for a while, and he was one of those guys hired to make the dang place run right. Fulner loved uh, my friend Ed Fulner, who was the founder of the Heritage Foundation love to hire these military guys who know how to get stuff done. And he, the Esper was one of them for a while. Very good. Uh, anyway, he's, he, he's trying to do something. We're trying to do something that Winston Churchill tried to do. Uh, and we're in the same situation they were. There are growing naval threats to a dominant, our dominant Navy, as there was to Britain at the turn of the century. And when Churchill was first Lord of the Admiralty, 1911 to 1914, and so he had to do two things at once, and they're hard. He had to grow the Navy, and he had to change the Navy. And those two things are difficult to do. And that means he just talked about a 30-year plan. I think we don't know what kind of ships we're going to be building in 15 years or 20 years. And I, I, I think we don't know what kind of ships we're going to be building in 10 years. We do know what the threat is for the foreseeable future, and that is China is attempting to deny us access to the Eurasian continent, to the east side of it where they are. And that's, that's our problem. The world has got smaller because of technology, so we're in exactly the position of Britain now. We're an island located between the land masses, and it's really just one land mass, Europe on one side and Asia on the other. We're you know, if you add in Africa, which is close to Eurasia, that's 87% or 85% of the world's population. And so we're a sea power. We've got to be able to get there. And that means our allies, Taiwan, and, you know, that's the controversial one, but it's a great one, and Japan and South Korea and all of those, those are important. And we've got to be able to reach them militarily or else our, our diplomacy will come completely apart. Yeah, the secretary and I talked about Taiwan in the part you did not hear because of the PRC, the CCP, uh, put out a, uh, a story in their Global Times, which is their Pravda, that says the Dongsha Islands uh, belong to them. They don't. They belong to Taiwan. And that it's a strategically important location that the PLA has the capability of turning into an exercise into action if the Taiwan secessionists insist on secession. They're threatening to run landing. Uh, it's empty islands. They're, they're called the Parskals uh, by Japan and Taiwan. They're called Dongshu Islands by China. I asked him, what would we do? And, and he demurred. And I, I don't think we should demur. 
I'm not sure what we should do, but whatever it is, we ought to tell the Chinese we're going to do it. Well, one of the worst things about you is that you're a good journalist, and so you keep asking him things he can't answer. You did that in that interview, right? Yes. What will we do if? Yep. And uh, and the right and the right answer. I remember once. Uh, uh, let's see, Dan Rather was pressing Ronald Reagan soon after he became president in a Rose Garden interview. What are you going to do about Cuba? What if you do this? And what if you do that? What if they do that? And uh, Reagan looked at him after, you know, deferring on 10 questions, and he said, I rule nothing in and nothing out, but I do recommend they mind their behavior. Well, you see, that is a perfect answer because there are hypotheticals like, what if Martians land on the Earth, which are stupid? And then there are hypotheticals like the PRC has just threatened in their mouthpiece organization to land on the on the Parscals in August. What are we going to do? Mm-hmm. And the, on the spectrum of hypotheticals, the closer you get to reality, the more you ought to l- become less ambiguous. Because I believe it was Dean Acheson who said, ah, Korea, to ha- uh, meh. And then the North Koreans invaded. It's a factual point. First of all, I believe in the Marshall Landing thing, by the way. We'll have to talk about that. But... Uh... Uh, it's a it's a factual point that we have military relations with Taiwan, and we have given them guarantees. Yes, and yes. so it would be dynamite to state those, but that's a dynamite thing to do because they exist. And if China invades Taiwan and we don't do anything about it, that's breaking our word. And uh, and you know we we. You know, we we should. There, there's a dance going on because China can. You know, if it means it, it can take Taiwan and destroy it. And those people, I know a lot of people over there. Are used to anyway. And you know, they just think of the. If you, to encapsulate the story quickly, so you know, Japan in the in the Second World War and in the 1930s, China was a mess, as it has often been in its very long history. And Japan invaded the southern part of it, and they worked that place over. You know, the imperial Japan was a very cruel nation. The Japanese governor of general, governor general of Taiwan, after Japan took that, uh, he was asked by the New York Times in the 30s, what's your policy toward the people of Taiwan? And he quoted the Bible. He said, I will whip them with scorpions. Oh! So, Chiang Kai-shek is from the southern part of China, and Mao Zedong is from the northern part, and Chiang Kai-shek ran a movement under the influence of Sun Yat-sen, who is under the influence of American principles, a Republican movement, and, and the communists in the north. Well, the Japanese took away the home base of Chiang Kai-shek, and he was driven up north, and he was eventually beaten by Mao Zedong, and they ran for their lives to the island of Taiwan. And forever, for 50 years after the Second World War, they kept up the idea that they were part, that they were the proper governor government of China mainland. And they actually had a legislature that most of its members still represented the districts that they that they represented in in China. And they got old, of course. And so now there's been a transition, right? And there's a, you know, if you, there, there are people on the left and people on the right in Taiwan, 
But they all have one agreement, and that is we don't want to be governed by China. We, we don't want to be what's happening to Hong Kong. Exactly. That's why Hong Kong is so relevant, because Taiwan is looking across the channel and saying to themselves, that's not what we want. Ten years ago, China was saying to Taiwan, you can trust us, let's unite, we'll treat you like Hong Kong. And Taiwan said consistent. And see, Taiwan, you know, they have free elections, and they, and, you know, they elect people whose platform is not to be part of China, and they elect them by overwhelming majorities. And if they elected the other party, they would be electing the same opinion. See, so there's no movement to re- reunite in, with China in Taiwan. Why would there be? And so now China, you know, and China flexing its muscles has an effect. We were talking about the Navy. Well, the great news for us is. Uh, when you're looking for allies around the perimeter, is that they like us because we're far away and we're not going to despotize them, even if they don't really like us. Whereas China, they fear. And, and the news is full of new reasons to fear China. Absolutely. The first uh, chain, the first island chain is where our allies are. I'll be right back with Dr. Arn. Welcome back, America, to you. are joined by Dr. Larry Arn, president of Hillsdale College, all things Hillsdale. Collected at hillsdale.edu. Dr. Aaron, I want to finish this uh, week talking about General Flynn, who has been on a three-year, three-and-a-half-year odyssey. He sought to serve his country by becoming the national security advisor. He was entrapped. He was bludgeoned. I believe you said the prosecution is now the punishment. Yeah. That is General Flynn. Would you just take the last couple of... This is a big deal. This case is a huge deal. And I didn't pay enough attention to it. I want to admit error. I thought he'd lied. I thought he had been um, uh, violated FARA. I thought he'd done a, a, a mistaken, legally, criminally wrong thing. But I have changed my mind. Well, I mean, first of all, just remember, in the, what's going on in America is that there's two ways of governing now. And one is according to the rule of representation grounded in human equality and consent. And the other is the government of expertise. And so, you know, why is Fauci somebody who can opine intelligently about whether it's a good idea to go back to college or not, right? He, and and he, what does he know? Because the effects of this thing are huge, of this shutdown, and the great majority of them are outside his competence. And, you know, Winston Churchill was eloquent on this. So now... Uh, and you are not deriding Dr. Fauci. He is within his competence superb i wonder uh <laughs> i think so but go ahead well yeah okay okay yeah, he's a really big deal and all that right but i don't i don't like him telling me whether we can have college or i agree but and, but within uh, and and that but so so the so now everybody in the government uh because it's been you know our mental climate has been transformed we don't really think that all power proceeds from the people in any direct and ongoing way. That is we, correct. The, the FBI is an institution, and it deserves its independence. I asked a senior guy in the FBI one time, I said, independence from what? And, you know, he paused. And I said, do you carry a gun? And he said, sometimes. I said, who gives you authority to do that? Shoot me, right? Is it the director of the FBI? 
Where did he get it? You see, that line of thought, right? And so now prosecutors, they can just make your life miserable. They can, you know, I, I, I read somewhere today that, uh, getting ready for this show, that Flynn has spent 3 or $4 million uh, defending himself. Yes. Well, he's not a rich man, right? No, and he's an means, army officer. He, he has been punished already, right? And that's, you know, I, I'm a prison reformer, and I'm a prosecution reformer because the rights of the accused, you know, the government's big and strong, and it's now more than half the economy. You can't and, beat the government. It's all, uh, Hillsdale has, but very few people can beat the government. Well, you know, we know enough about government to know that uh, no victory is, is long-lasting in that regard. You know, I mean, if the country becomes a despotism, Hillsdale College will be destroyed. And, you know, I, 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 try, I try to teach myself. I learned from Winston Churchill not to worry about things I can't control. But I do want the college to be strong and independent. You know, I thanked the senior government official the other day in the, in the wake of this mess for giving us new opportunities not to take any money from the government. <laughs> <laughs> By the way, how's your application field at Hillsdale College? Are you doing fine? Yeah, better than that. Yeah, we're going to, you know, if, if we, we don't know. Of course, nobody does. But uh, if things stay as they are, and they probably will, we will have the best class we've ever admitted. And that's saying something. That is. What is it saying? It's well, you know. I mean, our Hillsdale College is pretty smart. You don't like to, to brag much, but what it is saying is that amid the ruins, the strong institutions endured. When the earthquake came, the ones that were built with deep foundations have endured. See, I, you know, I, like I, you know, we're all talking about how this is a crisis for colleges. Well, it might be, but. This hasn't cost us very much money. You know, why? Where would the cost be? Well, you've, to teach on Zoom, you've got to buy a bunch of technology. Well, you know, we happen to have had that already, because <laughs> these, these online courses. And so, it, you know, it's, 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 we haven't made any money on it. It's kind of, uh, just on the expense side, it's sort of a wash. But, you know, colleges are getting checks for one and two and Nineteen million dollars. Not Hillsdale. Out of nowhere, right? And 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 uh, so and you know and most colleges today, we you know we don't get much of our budget from our students, and you know and so we work hard. We we want to be like the Marine Corps. It's very hard to get in, and we don't want much from you except everything you've got. Except <laughs> and for <laughs> so, life. And for life, mind you. Uh, Dr. Larry Arn, president of Hillsdale College, has got a lot of lifers. They're all signed up at hillsdale.edu. If you do anything this weekend, go sign up for Imprimus. You'll have something arrive every month in your mailbox that you will treasure actually reading a physical piece of paper from a real place on a map, even though it is in that state up north. Dr. Arn, thank you. Thank you, Ben. Thank you, Adam. Thank you, Generalissimo. Thanks all of you. Do not miss the Monday Semper Fi Fun show, SemperFiFun.org. I'll be here on Memorial Day celebrating the men and women who have been injured in the service of this country. You enjoy and remember those who gave the ultimate. Thank you.